0: Welcome to the Magic and Alchemy podcast, where we talk about witchcraft, setting intentions, forgotten folklore, and mythology. Created by Tamed Wild, Magic and Alchemy is a collection of stories, rituals, and articles crafted by a variety of creators and writers, including myself, Kristen Lisenby, and my co-host, Kate Bellew.
1: Hello and welcome back to the Magic and Alchemy podcast. I'm Kate Ballou.
0: and I'm Kristen Lysenby. Happy Maybon, friend. Happy Maybon,
1: Kristen listeners. Happy Autumn Equinox. I'm so happy. <laughs> fall is officially here, which um, it's our season—ancient, mm-hmm. oh, autumnal, feral girl fall witch season. Mm-hmm.
0: Yes. Uh also happy spooky season. Yes. You know, ghost stories are back up on the Tamed Wild blog for our fellow spooky friends. I just mm-hmm. love this time of year.
1: Mhm. Mm-hmm. And this is our our fourth season of the Magic and Alchemy podcast. I mean, can you even believe it?
0: No. <laughs> <laughs> but also yes, because one hundred and fourteen episodes today, oh <laughs> just wow! Yeah, I think I'll forever be in awe because I very clearly remember when this podcast was just a pipe dream, um, just a conversation that you, me, and Shelby were having about what could be, and now here we are, over three years and a hundred episodes later.
1: We have spent a lot of time talking. To each other, lots <laughs>
0: lots of time on Zoom, absolutely. Wow,
1: that's so amazing. Oh, mm-hmm. just thinking about all of our guests too, just yeah, listeners. The Witch Web. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hi everyone. <laughs> uh, but before we dive in to season four, we have just a couple of things to share with you, listeners, um, from our notes here, Kristen. So. First of all, so we have three episodes in between season three and season four. We are kind of loosely calling these bonus episodes or surprise episodes. Um, and if you go find these listeners, we talk about planetary magic on there with Tamed Wild Creatrix Shelby Bundy. We speak about Aphrodite. And then we have the Missing Witches on as guests to talk about their new book and reenchantment and Resistance. So... If you haven't heard these yet, we hope that you love them as much as we loved recording them over the summer. And additionally, if you have listened to them, thank you. Um, But you may have noticed that we now have a single commercial in the middle of each episode. Um, these are new. They are recorded with love by Kristen and Danielle and Shelby and myself to share all the new offerings and magic that Tamed Wild is up to. So yay for these. They're not your average commercial. Check them out. See what the coven is up to.
0: Yes, and via these commercials, we will be sharing information and maybe even some sneak peeks when it comes to the Tamed Wild subscriptions, seasonal boxes, workbooks, the book coven, and more, all of which you can find links to in our show notes.
1: Exactly. And this season, instead of a weekly episode, you'll find updates from Kristen and I every other week this season. So when there's no episode from us, there will be an episode published on The Moon in Carolina, a new podcast from Shelby Bundy. The Moon in Carolina podcast talks about Business and personal growth through the lens of spirituality, shadow integration, astrology, and consciousness. With 20 plus years of experience navigating the murky waters of entrepreneurship, Shelby and her guests dive into the everyday magic of creating the business and life that you were born to lead. Shelby is the creatrix behind the brand Tamed Wild and has built multiple six and seven figure businesses. That is, of course, after filing for bankruptcy, meeting the repo man, and hitting rock bottom. With candid openness, Shelby talks about growing from failures, facing our fears in life and business, and using our consciousness to create our lives. She's an author, past life regressionist, traditional astrologer, and holistic business coach. She is a Cancer Sun, Leo rising in Libra Moon, and lives in the woods of North Carolina. So definitely check out this new podcast from Tamed Wild, and as always, as we move through the season, send Kristen and I all of your questions, comments, and thoughts, and we love to hear them, and we'll answer listener questions at the top of each episode. Kristen, did I forget anything?
0: Mm -hmm. No, beautifully said. Uh, And I just want to add that we're really excited about these shifts in this new format this season. um, And we hope listeners that you all feel the same. Uh, And just thank you so much for being here.
1: Mm -hmm. Yes, yes, yes. So, Kristen, I thought that we could kick off our new season and celebrate the autumn equinox by pulling a group spell for all of us from our small spells deck that we made for Tamed Wild. What do you think? I love that. Okay, great. So just shuffling our deck here asking for a group spell for the both of us, season four of Magic and Alchemy and all of our listeners as we move through and into the autumn equinox and fall. <laughs> and listeners are going to think that I am, um, that I have, I'm lying, but I'm telling you the truth. I pulled the abundance spell here. <laughs> so fitting. Mm, perfect. Okay, great. So so our Abundance spell here, and this is something that you can repeat um, or maybe light a candle on an altar dedicated to the harvest, um, however it kind of feels right for you listeners to incorporate this, but the spell goes like this. Abundant blessings I can see already existing in front of me with gratitude I call this to be. So motive be or something better, Right.
0: Absolutely. And now that you've cast that beautiful spell over our conversation and our coven, what are we talking about today? Today we are spending
1: some time in the sacred fields and we are telling tales from the corn.
0: Yes, listeners, inspired by Maybon and the autumn equinox, were headed out to the fields to harvest some stories before the reaper takes his share. And so last season, in episode 72, we talked about Maybon and its magic. We reminisced about the essence of harvest season, specifically its landscape, the rust-colored fields and crispy plants that become more beautiful, more alluring as they approach their end. We mused over fields as sacred spaces and agricultural catalysts, we talked agricultural mysticism and the belief that, barring the words of Mircea Eliade, quote, the dead, like seeds underground, return to life in a different form, end quote. We contemplated the necessity of working with the land in regards to survival, but also for the emergence of a cosmic consciousness. We also reimagined our gardens as schools and altars, and I took us deep into spider season, which, if you didn't already know, listeners, spider season is a thing. Um, It is, and in the Azores and many parts of the Northern Hemisphere, it coincides with the autumn equinox and Samhain uh, and the conclusion of harvest season. So, we'll be sure to link last year's episode in our show notes if anyone wants to have a listen. Uh, but today, I'd like to add another chapter to that discussion with some thoughts on scarecrows, corn mazes, crows, and fields as the harvest time version of the archetypal fairy tale forest.
1: And I'll be talking about the history and making of corn dollies, the harvest spirit, both supportive and spooky, crop circles, and deities of corn and grain.
0: For anyone who doesn't know, I am in my cottage witch era, which means I have the pleasure of watching the land change color. And like so many others, I adore harvest time. I love watching the cornfields wave to me during late summer storms. I love the whooshing sound you become a part of when standing side by side these golden plant portals. Come September, my neighbor's fields, usually green and grassy for the animals, are now packed with yellow, towering plants, complete with giant seed pods that will soon be harvested to dry and eat, or saved for future seasons. Here's
1: to those in their cottage witch eras.
0: Yes. And to those still dreaming about their cottage witch era, mm-hmm. uh, just keep dreaming about it until you've secured your coven of goats and garden. It will happen. Mm-hmm. And then maybe come harvest time, you'll even have a cornfield or two as corn is synonymous with cottage witchery, but also spooky season. Just look to the candy corn. Corn dollies and harvest festivals where fresh cornbread and corn on the cob are staples. Corn is one of the crucial plants being reaped right now come the days of harvest, August through October. From an archetypal perspective, cornfields sometimes feel a bit forest-like to me, a bit liminal, In place of a tree-filled landscape, we're met with 14-foot-tall towering corn plants, impossible to see over or around. Standing in the middle of a cornfield can be a magical, mystical experience, but it also carries a spooky factor. It's a quiet place, although the corn is always whispering, and although we may not see many humans around, like a forest, wildlife is always afoot. Even if you don't see them, crows, mice, spiders—they work and make homes in the shadows.
1: Stephen King's *Children of the Corn* is definitely conjured up in my mind here right now.
0: <laughs> Same. Um, the nineteen eighties version still haunts me. Yeah, um, terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> it terrified me as a kid, and I'm pretty sure that's where the spooky factor comes into play. Um, at least for me. Mm-hmm. But movie aside, in a cornfield, in place of a witch in the woods or wise crone, a life-size man-made effigy, known as a scarecrow, deters unwanted visitors and acts as the guardian of the land. And day and night, just like when inside the deepest, darkest parts of the woods, it's easy to get turned around or lost in a cornfield because all the plants look the same. But, luckily, if the heroines from folklore have taught us well, we know that to make it out alive, we need to find the path lined with intuition and synchronicity, and brave the lessons of the corn maze. Although its origin is muddied, according to many reports, the, quote, first corn maze in the United States was crafted in Pennsylvania, circa 1993. 1993 supposedly the creator was inspired by his father who designed mazes for a local amusement park but this origin story conflicts with several others including one that claims corn mazes were mentioned in a 1982 newspaper article in a superficial sense i could see a corn maze being a more recent development as their popularity intersected with increased food security But mazes and maze-like patterns, and their cousin, the labyrinth, have been around for thousands of years. Although not exactly the same because a maze offers multiple paths and dead ends, whereas a labyrinth has one continual path that leads to the center, people often use these terms interchangeably. We talk about labyrinths more in episode 69 if anyone wants a deeper dive, but in folklore and myth, both mazes and labyrinths are the homes of monsters, ghosts, and all sorts of nefarious beings hiding just out of sight. The most famous mythological labyrinth can be found in the myth of Ariadne and Theseus, where the goddess of the sacred spiral, Ariadne, gives Theseus her ball of string. With the threads of fate in his control, Theseus navigates the labyrinth, reaches the center, and murders the monster within, the Minotaur. Some suggest the labyrinth symbolizes our unconscious realms or inner worlds. In this case, the monster within is usually ourselves, our shadows, or our greatest fears. Some suggest that the Minotaur is the mother figure, or the goddess, and that Theseus slaying the quote, monster, foreshadowed the fall of the goddess's lunar culture and the coming of the solar kings. To some, the labyrinth is a symbol of an impending initiation. Mm. I cannot wait
1: to listen to your retelling of this myth this fall in the autumn crossroads, by the way, Kristen. And I just feel like Ariadne's presence has been so felt this autumn.
0: Yeah, I'm really excited for that too. And I also agree that the labyrinth is having a moment right now. Um, Either that or Ariadne is just saying hello because she really has been popping up everywhere lately. Mm -hmm. Not complaining though. (laughs) And in harvest times, golden fields of initiation, the cornfields, instead of the witch in the woods, the scarecrow leads the ceremony. Today, we know the scarecrow as a Halloween decoration, but in the past, he was everywhere, as it was up to him to deter crows and any bird hoping to snack on the newly ripened fruits of our labor. People don't use scarecrows too often anymore, as farmers rely more and more on pesticides, but the practice of agricultural guardianship goes back to ancient Greece, when people placed homemade wooden statues in their fields. These statues depicted their god Priapus, son of Aphrodite and Dionysus. Priapus was famously unattractive. His most talked-about feature was his erect phallus. Eris.org says that Priapus was, quote, Adopted as a god of gardens, where his statue, a misshapen little man with enormous genitals, was a sort of combined scarecrow and guardian deity. Much like his parents, Priapus was honored for his generative powers. In images, he often resembles Dionysus. A marble relief from the first century shows the god running among lush great vines, arms filled with fruit, reaching up to pick more. Priapus also loves bees, another ally of fertile fields. Virgil said, Quote, let the watchman against thieves and birds, guardian Priapus, lord of the Hellespont, protect them, the bees of the beehive with his willow hook." End quote. A personification of the cornucopia or the horn of plenty in a spiritual sense, like the scarecrow, Priapus's role as a fertility god ensured that our fields would provide for us, a tradition and belief that was adopted by Greece's successors. Many believe that Greek Priapus evolved into the scarecrow we know today, where he still watches over our fields. One way? By deterring and distracting birds, specifically the pesky crow, who I mentioned earlier. As the name suggests, the scarecrow was designed to scare crows, but although originally enemies, the crow has become what I view as the unofficial familiar of the scarecrow. The fairy tale forest might rely on the owl to deliver our messages, but in the corn maze, the crow is our guide. Legend says that crows deliver oracles, although some might say omens. In a dictionary of literary symbols, author Michael Ferber says that the crow prospers when men slaughter one another, and so they are associated with battles and gallows and more generally with imminent death.
1: Mm, That really reminds me of Odin's two crows that fly all over the world to bring him information, especially from battle.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And this all makes sense because crows were divinatory creatures and psychopomps, they could move between worlds. According to Ferber, quote, In Latin literature, the raven or crow was thought to foretell a rainstorm, and in both Greek and Roman culture, these birds were used in augury, or bird prophecy, end quote. First and foremost, bird prophecy involves bird watching, so next time, listeners, you watch the birds, remember that the ancients believed this was a way to communicate with the divine. In J.E. Surlot's Dictionary of Symbols, he says that, quote, "...because of its black color, the crow is associated with the idea of beginning, as expressed in such symbols as the maternal night, darkness, and fertilizing earth." End quote. As harvest time is related to death the natural death of a season, the death of our gardens and the sun. When thinking about cornfields in a symbolic sense, there is a general idea that they are portals to the underworld. Um, and sometimes instead of a monster, it's the devil who lurks within the center. And the fun fact here, ancient crop circles were said to be made by the devil himself. Other people who believe the devil lives in the cornfields suggest that he begins harvest season by roaming throughout the entire field, but as the corn is reaped and collected, he escapes deeper into the middle of the field. That's why in some communities, the last stalk of corn isn't eaten, but burned or buried or offered to the harvest deities in some way. Although communities say the devil lives in the last stalk of standing corn, others say it's simply filled with the spirit of the plant itself, which is why corn makes for a potent offering in many magical workings.
1: Hi Tamed Wild Kevin, Danielle here. Are you interested in finding a group of witches that you can hop online and interact with? Are you looking for a group activity that you can do on your own timeline? Come hang out with me in our subscribers-only Instagram group, where we choose a book each month and discuss weekly. You will also find reels by the Tamed Wild team, a new free item each month, you just pay the shipping, and a downloadable Grimoire page crafted just for your personal Book of Shadows. Find us on Instagram at Tamed Wild and click the subscribe button. We look forward to seeing you. In my research for this episode, I found myself in the depths of the cornfield, a place not unfamiliar to me as a witch from rural Michigan. I considered these rituals of the final stalk of corn, the last grain, the effigies in which harvest is preserved, and the deities who preside over the fields. Corn is life-giving, known as one of the three sisters, corn, beans, and squash, Many different indigenous communities of North America have brilliantly cultivated this growing technique, weaving these three crops together to deter pests, support soil, and support each other. Corn is a foundational plant on the land where we live, and not just the corn itself for food or for farm. Corn silk is also used medicinally for its soothing and moisturizing properties. The history of the word corn is described in Bon Appetit as corn itself has much deeper roots. Going back to the misty prehistory of Proto-Indo-European, both grain and corn come from the very same old words, though there are two options for which that might be, either ger meaning worn down or ger meaning matured. That stem wound up through Latin, on the other hand, which kept the G and gave us today's grain, and through the Germanic languages, which, in their no-nonsense way, turned the G into a hard K and gave us corn. That conflation of grain and corn gets at another whole facet of corn's past. Back in the day, English speakers could use corn to refer to any grain they felt like, though it usually meant the predominant crop in any given region. In England, wheat was corn, while oats were corn in Scotland and Ireland. End quote. And it's not surprising the link between corn and grain, grain and corn, and the harvest season. As we've spoken about before on this podcast, harvest season begins on or around August 1st when the first grain is harvested in the balance between equinox and solstice. Sometimes this day is honored as Lunaza or Lamas or simply the first harvest, depending on where you are in the world. The second harvest is Mabon or the autumn equinox, the day where night and day are equal in time and in light, and then the final harvest of Samhain, at the gate of winter. During this time, filling the stores for winter was and is essential. Grain is life-giving, the grain, the field, it's sacred. And for many earth-spirited, grain and corn must be honored. And this is not a unique thought. Many different civilizations have honored deities of the corn or of grain, goddesses of the harvest season. For example, Demeter and Persephone, who we've spoken about at great length on this podcast before, especially as linked to the Eleusinian mysteries of this time of the year— I've especially been considering the link between the goddesses of harvest and the underworld, the roots and the murky dirt underneath these fields. In The Witching Herbs by Harold Roth, he writes about the connection between death and the harvest, saying, The deities who rule over death also rule over the wealth that comes from the earth, whether in the form of crops or minerals and metals. Perhaps this is why, in European cultures, death is often portrayed as a reaper. Just like wealth buried underground, the true nature of death is hidden from us. The horn of the god of sleep is echoed in the fruit-filled cornucopia that Hades is sometimes shown holding or even emptying on the ground. The goddess Demeter, an agricultural deity, also ruled over the Eleusinian mysteries which were said to help initiate triumph over death or learning of the afterlife. The connection between agriculture, death, and the underworld is very powerful even without touching upon the Greek mythology associated with Demeter and her daughter Persephone. Remember that Demeter's grief for absent Persephone brought the night of the year, winter, into being, and that Persephone was one of the very few able to travel to the underworld and return. End quote. There are also different myths of Ceres, the Roman counterpart to Demeter. Ceres was credited with the discovery of spelt wheat, the yoking of oxen and plowing, the sowing, protection, and nourishing of the young seed, and giving the gift of agriculture to humankind. Before this, it was said that quote, man had subsisted on acorns and wandered without settlement or laws. End quote. And yet, even older, Nidaba, the Sumerian goddess of grain. She was originally a grain goddess worshipped at the city of Uma in the early dynastic period, 2900 to 2800 BCE, but later became associated primarily with the city of Eresh, whose location remains unknown. She was the daughter of Anu and Unas, personifications of heaven and earth, although in certain cities like Lagash, she was represented of the daughter of Enlil and Ninlil, the divine couple who came to power with the blessing of Anu and Unas. In the best-known stories, however, Ninlil is Nababa's daughter and Enlil her son-in-law, while Enki, god of wisdom, is her patron, who you might remember from the myths of Inanna as her father. There's also the Egyptian goddess Heket, the Egyptian goddess of fertility, identified with Hathor, represented in the form of a frog. To the Egyptians, the frog was an ancient symbol of fertility related to the annual flooding of the Nile and therefore associated with both corn and childbirth. And these goddesses of corn and grain could fill an extensive list. Listeners, I encourage you to research your own ancestral, magical lands, lineages, and find the stories of your own harvest gods and your own deities of corn. And autumn and the cornfields have always been places of mystery, much like you spoke about earlier, Kristen, as a part of the spooky season. And beginning with these mysteries, the Eleusinian mysteries, and winding their way through history. It's never been uncommon to look into the fields with a suspicion or maybe even a hope that the fields are looking back. And one of these mysteries is the mystery of crop circles. In an article in the BBC called England's Crop Circle Controversy, Daniel Stables writes, quote, Although such formations have appeared worldwide from California to the rice paddies of Indonesia, southwest England is the world capital of crop circles. They are particularly concentrated in the county of Wiltshire, a treasure trove of ancient history, includes the Neolithic sites of Stonehenge and Avebury, both crop circle hotspots. Carving artwork into the landscape is an age-old tradition in these parts chalk horses adorn eight hillsides in Wiltshire, while the UK's oldest geoglyph, the stunning Bronze Age Uffington White Horse, sits just beyond the border in Oxfordshire. Reports of mysterious patterns appearing in the wheat, barley, and cornfields in the area began to circulate in the 1970s, but it was in the late 80s that the phenomenon exploded. Circles began to appear more frequently and became far more ornate. Some resembled trippy fractals, others rune like hieroglyphs, others stylized animals recalling those of the Nazca lines in Peru. And in this way, the spirits of harvest are alive and well woven into the fabric, the grain fields of our so called modern day. And the corn spirits live on also in the tradition of the corn dollies, which were a part of last season's tamed wild box and are available on the site in a simple kit for anyone looking to add this ritual to their harvest season witchery. From the Bassett Law Museum, quote, corn dollies, whose name derives from corn idol or corn image, have been around for thousands of years with many designs dating back to pagan times around 4,000 years BCE, together with the evidence of the existing carvings on old tombs looking very much like plated straw work in Egypt at 6,000 years BC. The folklore and history behind corn dollies is very varied, but the basic idea behind them is that the spirit of the corn, which could be oats, wheat, rye, or barley, resided in the last sheaf gathered at harvest time, and special ceremonies attended its cutting. Often a figure or traditional design would be made from the sheaf that would be preserved in the home until the following year in the belief that the spirit would ensure that the seed corn would germinate in the following spring. End quote. These instructions from Janet Goddard in the history and making of corn dollies are as follows for this process. Firstly, the corn is cut by hand and should be done before the corn is fully ripe and has started to head over. There should still be a small amount of green visible at the first joint of the stalk, and the kernels are still soft. By cutting while the corn is slightly green, as the grains are not fully ripened, they are less likely to drop later and will dry out to a beautiful golden color. Once the sheaves have been cut, they will require drying, ready to be graded according to thickness, length, and color. Only then can the art of making corn dollies begin. The techniques of corn dolly making have been handed down through generations of farmers and their workers, and although the original beliefs behind them have been long forgotten, many designs have survived for us to recreate today, together with newer and more up-to-date ideas, British dollies vary from county to county. For example, the bell and the umbrella come from Cambridgeshire. The horseshoe is from Suffolk, together with the color ribbon used to signify different meanings. End quote. For my Polish ancestors, there is Dazinki, a Slavic harvest festival celebrated still today. In pre-Christian times, the feast usually fell in the autumn equinox, and in modern times is usually celebrated on one of the Sundays following the end of harvest season, which falls on different days in different regions of Europe, but it is noted online as being the last week of August this year. The more modern practices are related to Christianity, but the ritual aspects, the pagan roots from the spirit of harvest, can still be seen. This feast was initially associated with the pagan Slavic cult of plants, trees, and agriculture, and while there are many regional varieties and traditions, most have some aspects in common. According to the Dzinki Harvest website, often the peasants or farmers celebrating Dzinki gather in the fields outside of their village, bringing back a last sheaf or batch of cereal reaped from the nearby fields. The women would then turn it into a wreath. A procession was formed with the wreath being carried by the finest female reaper, followed by the rest of the solemnly dressed harvesters, some carrying flowers, others scythes and sickles on their shoulders. Harvesters sang about the hardship of their work, wished for the future crops to be plentiful, and the hope of fun and treats to come. The harvest wreath was kept in a barn until the next sowing. Another of these rituals was connected with the last handful of uncut grain. It would be left on the field for some time after the harvest to retain continuity and fertility of future crops. Eventually, it would be reaped in a very solemn manner by the finest harvester and passed over to the most efficient of the women for processing. Quote. And so, listeners, harvest season is well underway. And whether you live in an agricultural community or not, I encourage you to visit the cornfields, the grain fields of your imagination. What sustains you? What food nourishes your body? How are the cycles of planting, life, and death linked in your life? In what ways can you ritualize this moment to honor the spirit of the harvest, the corn, the harvest goddess? Equinox blessings, listeners, and happy harvesting.
0: Thank you so much for joining us today on Magic and Alchemy, a podcast from Tamed Wild. Again, we're Kristen Lisenby and Kate Blue. You can find us online at Easton Alchemy and at k 8 blue Send us all of your questions, comments, or just say hello via email at podcast at you can view all the amazing offerings from Tamed Wild on their Instagram, at Tamed Wild, or on the blog, TamedWild.com.
1: Join us back here in two weeks for another magical conversation. Just a reminder that magic and alchemy are always available to those who know where to look for it. So mote it be, or something better. Until next time.